This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent, licensed professional for assistance. Hi, I'm Dr. Merrill. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, the podcast for caregivers. On this show, age doesn't matter. If the people you are caring for are 3 or 30 or 90, it doesn't make a difference. This show is for you. If you yourself are 20 or 65, this show is for you. It doesn't make a difference. And guess what? On this show, my age doesn't matter either. We're all caregivers and we're all in this together. Our guest this week is John Kenyon. John has a background in clinical psychology, and his special interest is in transforming difficult conversations into peaceful resolutions. You know, as a caregiver, you have a lot of difficult conversations with a lot of different people. And so having difficult conversations that end up peacefully would really be great. You know, in my family, we all got along very well. But suddenly, my mother had a very dense stroke, and there was a lot of disagreement about her care, and it resulted actually in a lot of conflict. It completely blew me away. I just never expected it. I really thought all of us had the skills to really resolve conflict and issues peacefully. But you know, when something happens quickly and unexpectedly like a stroke, suddenly that chaos can just lead to conflict. So I'm very anxious to talk to John today and talk to him about these kinds of situations. He is the author of Choosing Peace, New Ways to Communicate to Reduce Stress, Create Connection, and Resolve Conflict. John has presented workshops all over the world, and he's done this with families, and he's done it with companies. He's the co-founder and developer of the Mediate Your Life training program. And I will tell you that just listening to John, his voice is very relaxing and very calming. So you might not want to be driving while you're listening to this. Welcome, John, to Caught Between Generations. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. So, John, I really want to start out with a quote of yours Um, from your book, because I just found this quote so striking, and I'm actually going to read it. You said, anytime we have a judgment or image of someone that prevents us from feeling connection and compassion with them, we have an enemy image. Enemy images create suffering and disconnection and are likely to lead to more conflict. I, I thought that that quote having to deal with enemy images and the stress of the importance of connectedness as a first step was really so important and so striking. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you feel as though people need to feel connected first? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I got that phrase, or um, Ike Laster and myself, we wrote the, that book together. We, uh, from uh, our mentor... Marshall Rosenberg, and um, this idea of enemy images, but it, but some people hear that and they think it means 
you know, like you're literally at war in some war zone or something. And actually the way I think of that is that very common, it can be with the people closest to us, the ones we love the most. But when we, when we feel triggered into a reaction, we feel hurt, upset, angry, something happens that really touches a, a tender place inside, that that kind of image can pop up of, 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 an, of an enemy suddenly, somebody who, who uh, you know, part of our brain is, is probably, uh, it's very popular knowledge now the, uh, through brain science, the amygdala and that part of the kind of ancient part of our brain that uh, lights up to this part of the, uh, the fight, flight, freeze, survival reaction in us. And um, that part of us sees an enemy, I think, sees danger, sees threat. It doesn't, it, you know, and, and often it is with the people very close to us. And so, you know, how do we come back to my, my whole work that I've been doing for over 20 years now? It's been how do we come back to this place of a natural kind of connection and compassion that we have as human beings. I think it's, it's always there between us, but we get blocked and cut off from it. But John, I think it's so difficult. If you have a conflict with someone, whether it be a family member or a friend, maybe even a colleague, I think it's very difficult to take a step back and to make yourself feel connected to the person that you're having conflict with. Yeah, that's that's the trick. Is that, that part of us doesn't uh, doesn't want to be connected? Wants to, you know, thinks that we're in danger and needs to either fight or run away or something very kind of basic survival. And so the training that that uh, that I offer is about how, how do we retrain the the our brain, our nervous system. So there's a lot about neuroplasticity now, and I think this is part of you know what what I do is part of that of kind of how do we retrain our brain to to that to when we get triggered into that primal reaction, how to not let that just completely take over. And there really is a way to train ourselves to, you know, through mindfulness practices, but also through language, language that we can take whatever these judgments that are forming, because usually when that, when that conflict starts to arise inside of us, that experience of it, we have a set of, of thoughts and judgments and, and kind of negative evaluations and these images that kind of form that literally kind of block off the humanness and the compassion to the other, and the emotions that go with anger and things like that. And so there's ways you can use language to get to what connects us, what connects us as human beings. You can take a, a, a judgment, say, for example, if I notice that I'm thinking that my brother is being selfish and self-centered and egotistical, if I have those, if I notice I have those judgments, I can look, well, what, what human needs and values are behind that? What is that, what is that judgment expressing in me that, that's coming up in me? Oh, it's that I want, I want care. I want sensitivity. I want understanding. I want to know that I matter. What I have to say matters. I want to be heard. Whatever Those kind of values, those needs that we have as human beings, we can use language to actually get back to that place that we feel connected to ourselves. And connected to the other person again, I can, I can look at what needs might this person be. When my brother, when he says something that's hard for me, I wonder what needs he's trying to meet behind that. And, uh, for example, maybe he wants respect and consideration for him. And he's saying something about me that's, that's judgmental. Uh, so anyways, there's ways we can use language that really help us reconnect to ourselves and to others. I think that is a good thought. And, and, my listeners and I, actually, we talk a lot about how language and words and what you say to yourself 
have so much power um, and can really change your frame of reference and change how you're looking at something and at people. So let's talk a little more about siblings, because one of the things that I see a lot, especially now um, in what I do at Syracuse and dealing with seniors, is a lot of conflict between siblings, especially over the care of a parent. So usually there's one sibling in the family, and very often it's the woman, it's true, um, that is the primary caregiver. Um, And the other the other siblings or sib are secondary caregivers. And there it's very hard because there there is a lot of conflict that occurs between those people. And often the sibling who is the primary caregiver is saying things like, you don't understand how hard this is for me. You don't understand how exhausted I am and how stressed I am and I never get a break. And the other sibling is saying anything from that's how you've always been. You've always wanted to be a martyr. You know, you don't allow anyone to help you. I mean, it just goes on and on and and escalates. I mean, how do you connect in a situation like that? How do you connect? So how to connect, if I'm mediating between, say, uh, uh, someone who is the primary caregiver and a sibling that is having these kind of reactions, yeah? How to help them get connected? That yes. Way to, uh-huh. Yeah. So, so what I do is very, you know, very simple terms is to, to slow down that, the communication between them so that if, uh, for example, um, some of the language you were just using that, that either one of them might have. So if, if the, uh, the non-primary caregiving sibling says, you know, you just, uh, you know, you're just controlling and you think you know better and I don't get to, you know, I don't get to have a say in anything. And, you know, and I might say, well, okay, let's, let's take what you, is what you're saying right now that you're, you know, you're seeing your, your, say, you're seeing your sister this way. And you're pretty upset about it. You're angry. And is that because you want more of a sense of kind of mutuality or um, kind of power in how things happen? You want kind of respect for what you think and feel about this. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you want your sister to hear? And he might say yes right away or maybe that's not quite it. But we kind of get to what is exactly that he wants at that kind of basic human level, you know, that we all want things, you know, that kind of. Uh, those needs that we all want. And then I'd go to the sister, say, you know, so sister, can you, can you let your brother know what you hear is important to him, what he wants at that, you know, kind of fundamental level. And at first she might say, well, he just thinks that I, you know, don't listen to him, but that's absolutely ridiculous because I don't, he doesn't understand how hard I work. You know, I do so much for, for our mother and, and I go, oh, okay, hold on. So maybe I give her a little emergency empathy with sometimes say, uh, to kind of help her feel understood in the moment, just to kind of, okay, so you really want him to understand that how hard you're working and what it's like to hold that kind of responsibility. Yeah, you're damn right. Okay, all right. Now, I heard him talk about how he wants to have a sense of mutuality and some, some sort of power and respect for what, what, what's important to him um, and some understanding for that. Would you just let him know what you heard him say about that, kind of what he wants, rather than any kind of judgment of you, just to hear what's important to him? And if I you know, work at that uh, enough, that she go, okay, all right. So then she'll, say, she'll let them know what she heard about that. So I basically help people empathize with each other by listening to what's in each other's hearts, what their emotions and feelings are connected to what these universal kind of qualities that we all want that connect us as human beings. 
So that's, and then I do it the other way too. So I'd say, okay, now what do you want your brother to hear? And maybe she'd say again, well, he just doesn't get how hard I work. And I'd say, okay, so you want him to hear that this is important for you to be understood and seen for how, what you're doing to contribute to your mother and what it's like for you, the stress. Yes. Okay. And then I asked the brother if he'll just say that part back instead of the judgments of him, would he say, would he say back kind of what's in, what's in her heart, what, what she really cares about as a human being to be understood about. So that's what I do. And whether if, if I'm not there as a mediator, it's kind of how do you learn how to do that for yourself? If someone like me isn't there to help that happen, how do you learn how to, to listen in this way beneath the judgments and the enemy images and to hear what's in another person's heart? And also to express yourself that way too, to say the truth, to say what's really honest and authentic, but in a way that connects you instead of disconnects you. I, th- I think that's uh, an important point because I think if I'm the primary caregiver, you're right. Maybe if I really sit down and I really think about it for a moment, you know, maybe what I want is maybe I just want recognition or appreciation for what I'm mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I actually want help and then mm-hmm. I need to be prepared for that. So yeah. if I ask for the help and someone says, fine, I'll help you, what do you want? And I say, oh, I don't know. I mean, whatever. You know, you should kind of know what to do. All right. Mm-hmm. That just backs people into a corner. Um, mm. And so maybe, and we've talked about this before on the show, you need to sit down and make a list of what you, of the ways in which people could help you. And then you'd be prepared for that. And you could actually tell them um, how to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's how you ask, uh, I find. And one thing, it's sometimes we ask for help in a way by saying, you're so, you know, you're so, uh, insensitive to, 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 to what matters, you know? So we often express what we want, the help we want. Um, you know, you're so, you know, you have no idea what I, what I do, you know, you're just totally clueless. So yeah. that's often, that's often a very tragic, again, this, uh, my my uh, my mentor Marshall Rosenberg developed this work called nonviolent communication, compassionate communication. He would say, "Yeah, we often we have these tragic expressions of our of our needs, like for help and support and understanding." So um, yeah, to be able to hear behind that or help someone express it more clearly, what do you want? They would give you, "Oh, you want help and support? Okay, what would you like?" And that often though people aren't that specific. So a couple things go wrong, I find, in the communication flow then. If, if someone is trying to say what they want, they either aren't very specific. Like they'll say, well, some things they might say what you just said. Yeah, well, you know, just you know what to do, right? And no, actually, I don't know what you want. But um, they, they might just say, well, I want you just to be, you know, more supportive, more understanding, you know. I want you not to. I want you not to argue with me so much. Right? We say what we don't want. We say things in really general terms. We don't say really, but that's still kind of in that realm of what we of those universal kind of qualities that we want. You know, understanding and support and and so it's like okay. So what do you what do you want more specifically? What could your brother do that would really help you out with this? Um, and then maybe it would get down to well, I'd like him twice a day, twice a week, if he would. Uh, you know, offer to bring food and, uh, or, you know, something getting down to that really nitty gritty, you know, how often, what exactly could he bring or do or say, or, you know, really specific actions. And sometimes people, yeah, they don't, they haven't thought about it that much. They don't really know. So it takes some effort to kind of get 
clear on that. But then I find if people do take the time, they can actually come up with really specific requests. And then, but this other pitfall is the request isn't really a request, it's a demand. And then people, in my experience, don't, don't respond very well to demands. And especially if there's a history of demands. And demands is not about, I mean, a request is not how nicely you say it. So if she says, oh, brother, you know, would you please, you know, uh, bring, bring food twice a week? Um, and then th- that isn't the mark of a request, how nicely she says it. It's what happens if he says no? What happens if he mm-hmm. says no? Does she say, oh, that's typical. Of course, you're only thinking about yourself again. There you go again, <laughs> right. right? Then it's not a request, is it? It's a demand because she's using guilt and shame to try to get him to do it. So I find that people sense that or they have a history of it, it makes it much harder for the person to respond from their heart, from the desire to contribute to somebody's needs and well-being. So you have to really, you know, I find it really helps to make a true request that you really only want someone to do it if they can do it willingly, even joyfully, wanting to do it to contribute. And you build up some trust with somebody that you don't want to force them or make them feel bad if they don't do what you want. You really want to find a way that works for everybody. Yeah, so think, those are some things that can really help. I think the way that you phrase the request, it, you know, will determine what the response is. I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking I have a friend who I love dearly. We've been friends for a long time. But when she needs my help with something, she drives me a little crazy. Because if she would just come and say, Meryl, I need you to help me, or would you... I would say, yes, you know, but it's a five-minute conversation. It's a five-minute intro. Uh It's like, oh, you probably can't do this, and I know you're too busy, and you probably won't want to do it, and I really don't want to ask you. I mean, by the time we get done with all that, then I am aggravated, all right? I was okay in the first 30 seconds. I was like, sure, whatever you need, I'll do for you. By the time I get done the five-minute intro, I'm like, oh, my gosh, already, you know, you know, you're driving me crazy, you know, and then she's like, oh, well, you're irritated. Well, of course I'm irritated. I've been listening to a five-minute disclaimer, you know. Yes, yes, and I think people do that sometimes anyways because they don't, they don't trust that, that they're, you know, that what they would like, how they would like to be supported or cared for is, is, is a gift to, to you, say, that, that by sharing something you could do for her, that that would be kind of giving you a gift, an opportunity to contribute to her and do something nice for her and that, you know, maybe she's worried you'll hear it as a demand or think that, you know, so- something bad will happen by asking or she's not worthy of it. So I think we make these big, long, you know, roundabout ways of saying things instead of just really clear, yeah, I could really use some help and support. Would you, would you like to do this for me? And, and then, but really being okay if that doesn't work for you, right? But yeah, I think we're afraid often to go there because of all the baggage we carry around making a request. Right, and I think that your point about... Um, not wanting to hear no also play, yeah, plays into that. No. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. in in all the years I was doing therapy, I mean, one of the things I talked about with families was things were getting better often in the families and everyone was feeling happier and, and good about what we were doing and the work we were doing. But what I used to say to them is, okay, this is great. But we all know how life is. We're, we're not all dancing down the yellow brick road and singing happy songs forever and ever. It just doesn't work that way. So what are you going to do the next time the conflict or the issue arises? And, and so, John, I have the same question for you. So you're working with people. They're resolving their conflicts. They now have peaceful resolutions to that. 
But you know what happens. People get under stress. The next thing they do is they return to the old pattern or the old habit. So what happens when you begin to have a lapse, so to say, in in the way you've been working with each other so peacefully? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've learned the kind of the hard way at times to prepare people when I work with them and, and, and help them resolve conflicts to we get to a point where things they've talked it through they they feel understood by each other they feel that connection flowing between them again they've come up with some requests and some solutions uh about how how they want to do things uh and then i i tell people yeah so let's come let's come up with some agreements you know about make sure that you're agreeing what you want to do is that those agreements are clear to everybody uh but then what i say is i uh there's two other kinds of agreements I find really helpful besides what we call the main agreement, you know, or agreements is a supporting agreement. So what do you want to do to try to support this agreement to happen? Because if we're change, trying to change behavior, you know, it's sometimes hard to do that right away. And sometimes we slide back into old ways of being and doing things and old habits. And so are there things you'd like to do to support these main agreements? To happen, like to set, uh, to, to write post-it notes for yourself, to put reminders into your phone, to send emails to each other, to, you know, to whatever reminders, um, or other types of things like that that just kind of support in that way. And then a third one that really gets to your, what you were saying is a restoring agreement. Like, and I say to people, look, you know, it's not uncommon that the, these, these agreements don't get kept right away. Um, and you can be all excited and happy and glad you got to this place and then and then the agreement isn't kept and you end up feeling worse than you were before like even more upset and distraught and hopeless because oh my god now it you know i was so optimistic and now it happened again and so i say yeah that can happen not that it needs to happen but it can and then what do you, what agreement do you want to have with each other so if it does happen you can come back together talk about it again have understanding for why it didn't happen, you know, what, what good reasons, what needs were being met by, you know, by not keeping the agreement as well as the needs that you're trying to meet by keeping that agreement. Um, and then, you know, do you want to come up, do you want to reinforce and kind of recommit to the, that agreement or do you want to come up with a better one? Maybe you've learned that that one didn't work so well and maybe there's a better one now that you've learned through your experience. So you can use this idea of, of a restoring agreement and a plan to come back together and talk it through and come up with either you know, continuing with the same agreement or a new one that actually is like this iterative process. I think it's very natural uh, life process of, of kind of learning and improving and growing. And that's part of these, uh, part of these agreements as well. And it just prepares people, frames people for this happening uh, instead of them getting so upset. Thank you, John. This has been great. And we've learned, I think, a lot today um, about maybe how we can find a little bit of peace with each other in our lives. How do people get your books, read your blog, get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can go to my personal website, johnkinion.com, and that's uh, all about me. And the, the, the public workshop trainings that I do, year-long training programs in this, uh, this work that I've been talking from, uh, which we call Mediate Your Life, how do you mediate all aspects of your life, every conflict in your life, uh, and including mediating between others around you, uh, is uh, there's, that website is mediateyourlife.com. And uh, from there, you can look at our, find our uh, books that we've written. Choosing Peace is one of the books, and the other book that just came out, From Conflict to Connection. And you can find those on the resource page of the Mediate Your Life 
com website. Thank you, John. Wishing you peace uh, in your holiday season. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. So my takeaway today has to do with holiday baggage. And I want you to picture this. You're all sitting around the Thanksgiving table, and suddenly one of your adult children says, Mom, you always give John a bigger piece of pie than you give me. Always. You know, I don't care that he's my older brother. Ugh. Stop complaining. You're 40 years old with a great job. You can buy yourself an entire pie if that's what you want. So think about this for a moment. Does schlepping old baggage into family gatherings really make you feel any better? And usually the answer is no. You can't enjoy the event or you can't enjoy the holiday. And the result is often that you end up feeling isolated and angry And meanwhile, you haven't had any resolution or any closure to whatever your issue is. It not only ruins the actual day, but usually the few days before and the few days afterwards. Because as you're anticipating the day, you're thinking about exchanges or actions that tick you off and you're getting angry already. And then afterwards, you're busy whipping yourself because you're thinking, oh, I should have said this, or I should have said that, or I could have said this, or I could have said that. So when you add it all up, you spend about three to five days aggravating yourself. Your time is valuable. You deserve some R&R. So you have to think about, is this old issue really worth this much time? So what are some quick tips, some things you could do to get yourself through the holiday? Well, send a concrete and clear message that arguing and sniping will not be tolerated in your home if everyone is coming to you. Place an old suitcase near the front door. Yeah, I'm really serious. Place an old suitcase really near the front door. Have paper and pencil ready and ask each person to write down whatever their issue is. Crumple it up and throw their baggage in the baggage and then compliment them on leaving their baggage at the door. The other thing you could do is shorten your time together. I mean, really, do you need to invite everyone for the entire day? And if you're a guest, do you really need to show up for the entire day? Maybe you don't. Maybe just part of the day is just fine. And the last tip is try to break things up a little so you're not all sitting at the table for long periods of time. Because sitting and facing each other without playing cards or without doing some kind of activity can just give you more time to start sniping and fighting if that's what goes on. So have a break between the main meal and the dessert. It's better, the dessert will taste better, and everybody will be calmer. But the bottom line is, is make yourself a priority. Decide whether continuing to spend energy on someone else's mistake is really worth the investment of your time, your valuable time. So invest in yourself. Leave the baggage at the door. This is Dr. Merrill. You can write to me at drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. I hope you will. For those of you who have been emailing me, I've really enjoyed hearing from you. Thank you.